Well, we return to our study of uh, 2 Thessalonians, which has taken us into chapter 2. We have already examined uh, the first 12 verses where Paul corrects false teaching concerning the timing of Christ's return. But beginning at verse 13, Paul moves from prophecy to the practical. This reinforces the truth I've emphasized the last few weeks, that the purpose of prophecy is not to produce speculation about the future, but motivation to live for Christ today. In verses 13 through 17, we will learn this morning how to stand firm for Jesus as we await His return, which is a theme in both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. In 1st Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul wrote to the church, Now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. And now in 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2, after the exhortation in verse 2, not to be quickly shaken, we'll discover that he exhorts them in verse 15, so then, brethren, stand firm. Using the words of Jesus, as Christians, we are not to be as reeds shaken in the wind. Or as Paul put in Ephesians 4, verse 14, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. James exhorts us not to be the double-minded man who is unstable in all of his ways. Instead, believers are to be rock-like, as it says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight: steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In Hebrews 12, 28, we read, we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And I love Psalm 125, where in verse 1 we read, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. But let's be honest, experiencing security Experiencing stability in this very insecure and unstable world is one of the greatest challenges for every Christian. The New Testament clearly identifies a number of factors which continually threaten our security and against which we are to take our stand. Look at the introduction in your sermon notes where I have listed the inescapable battles we must fight while waiting for Jesus to return. And I've just basically listed the ones that you discover right in First and Second Thessalonians. And the first is persecution. Persecution. And just look at this emphasis through both of these epistles. First Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, Paul wrote, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word, notice, in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We discovered how this church was birthed in the very fires of persecution. Uh, chapter 2 of the of First Thessalonians, verse 2, Paul says, But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. 
Look at verses 14 through 16 in chapter 2. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Look at chapter 3. Verses 2, 3, and 4. It says, And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. And then over in 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 1, verse 4, we see this same uh, factor of persecution. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And then, of course, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. You're all familiar with that verse. It says, all, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. It is inevitable. It is inescapable. There are different levels of persecution. But if you desire to live godly, to make a stand firm for a stand for Christ in this age, you're going to suffer persecution. Not only persecution, look at the next factor, false teaching. False teaching. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Why is there a need to examine everything carefully? Because there is false teaching out there. There's the counterfeit. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We don't need to read that. That's been our focus the last few weeks where Paul was dealing with false teaching that had infiltrated the church at Thessalonica. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus said that there will be wolves that will disguise themselves in sheep's clothing. That's the clothing of the shepherd in order to devour the sheep. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. When Paul was leaving the city of Ephesus, he met with the elders, the church leaders, and he says, You need to be on guard and to watch over the flock that God has purchased with His blood. Because after I leave, He says, there's going to be wolves that come among you that attempt to devour the sheep. And He says, even among yourselves, even among the leadership, there will arise perverse men who seek to lead the disciples astray. And then 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses one through three says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words." So we're going to deal with persecution. We're going to deal with false teaching. And then the third thing, temptation. Temptation. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, For this reason, when I could, no, could endure it no longer, I also 
sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor should be in vain. Uh, Chapter 4, we will not read all of those verses, but that's where Paul is saying you need to turn away from impurity. You need to turn away from lustful passions and to walk in holiness because God has not called us to impurity, but he's called us to sanctification. He's called us to live a pure life in Jesus Christ. And, of course, the entire context is, is the fact that we are tempted to stray from God and to walk in impurity instead of living pure lives. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 22, notice he says, abstain from every form of evil. And then the next verse that God desires to sanctify us, body, soul, and spirit. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 that we looked at last week talks about the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We live in a culture that is lawless, that is abandoned moral absolutes, where anything goes. And it is very difficult living in a culture like that to stay pure. Uh, to not become stained by the pollution of this world. And then, of course, you're all familiar with the James passage where it talks about uh, we are enticed uh, by temptation, uh, by our own character deficiencies and struggles that uh, turn us away from God to go after things which are not pleasing to Him. So persecution, false teaching, temptation, what else? The adversary. We have... An adversary that's live and well, the devil. First Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 18. Uh, Paul says, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us or thwarted us. Uh, look at chapter 3, verse 5. We just read that where it talks about the tempter had tempted them. Uh, and, of course, First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, talks about we have an adversary, the devil, who's like a lion, who, who is seeking to what? Devour believers. Says he would bring you down in sin where you would lose confidence in the grace of God. And then the last thing that we clearly see in these two books is uh, discouragement, the matter of discouragement. Again, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. Notice the very language indicates that they were disturbed, that they were struggling with disappointment and discouragement. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 14, he talks about the need to encourage the faint-hearted and to help the weak. So there will be those within any church family that get down at times, that struggle with discouragement and disappointment. And then Psalm uh, 13, sort of says it all. I think we've all been here at different times. The psalmist wrote, How long, O Lord, wilt thou forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Notice, the psalmist feels what? Forgotten by God, forsaken by God, mastered by his feelings of depression, mastered by his foes. And it's inevitable living in this life, uh, dealing with the adversity that we have to deal with, that that is going to beat us down as Christians, even the, the greatest of Christians. And we are going to struggle with discouragement and disappointment. So as we are attacked by persecution by false teaching, temptation, the, adver- the adversary, and discouragement. How is it? Here's the question. How is it that we do not become overwhelmed, that we're able to stand firm for Jesus? 
And in our verses for today, verses 13 through 17, Paul gives us three tactics that will enable us to stand firm for Jesus as we await his return. So please follow in your sermon notes and notice the first tactic or the first truth. Stand firm by rejoicing in the security of your salvation. Stand firm by rejoicing in the security of your salvation. Follow with me in your Bibles, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the preceding verse, verse 12 Paul refers to those who will be judged because they did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. In contrast, Paul thanks God for the salvation of the Thessalonians despite the fact that the Thessalonians are being severely persecuted, infiltrated by false teaching, tempted by the pleasures of lawlessness, attacked by the adversary, and struggling with disappointment Paul expresses no panic, but instead is confident that God will sanctify those who believed in the truth, and He will bring them safely home to glory, as it says at the end of verse 14, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, this is the tone of the entire New Testament concerning believers, this confidence that God is able to accomplish the work that He's begun in us. Just several great cross-references. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, For I am confident, Paul writes, of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Jude, verse 24, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. And then 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, For this reason I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day, the day of Christ's return. Now, Paul's thanksgiving and his confidence is rooted in three facts about a believer's salvation. And look at them with me. First, God loves you. If you're a believer this morning, if you're a follower, if you've turned from your sin to place your trust in what Christ accomplished for you on Calvary's cross and canceling out your sin debt and breaking the power of sin, inviting Him into your heart to forgive you of your sins and take control of your life, You can be certain of one thing this morning, regardless of what's happening around you or even what's happening inside of you, God loves you. God loves you. Look at the very first part of verse 13 again. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren. Notice, beloved, beloved by the Lord. A child of God, a follower of God, of Christ is beloved by the Lord. At the root of the word beloved is agape. 
which is God's love, which carries the idea that God has set or he has directed his love towards his child, which nothing can alter. And folks, when we talk about God's love, you need to personalize his love because love is a very personal thing. For example, in 1 John 3, 1, we read, and let me just personalize it for my own life and encourage you to do this for your, for your life as well. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon Andy Merritt, that he should be called the child of God. And how did God bestow that love on Andy Merritt? Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward Andy and that while Andy was yet a sinner, Christ died for Andy. And in 1 John 4, 10, in this is love, not that Andy loved God, but that God loved Andy and sent his son to be the propitiation for his sins. And can anything separate Andy from God's love? Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate Andy from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Will God's love ever fail Andy? Hebrews 13, 6, I will never leave you, Andy, nor will I ever forsake you, Andy. Will God's love ever let Andy off? Hebrews 12, 5. Those whom the Lord loves, he what? Disciplines. And he scourges every son that he receives. Bottom line, a believer did nothing to deserve God's love. It was the free gift of God's grace. Therefore, he can do nothing to lose God's love. The one thing a believer can always be guaranteed of in good times and bad times, in victory or failure, joy or sorrow, is God's love. Once you enter that relationship with Christ, nothing, nothing can ever alter his disposition of love towards you. He is committed to you. He's committed to your best. He's your greatest cheerleader, the one that wants you to know all his plans and purposes for your life. Now, what practical impact should this have on a believer? Well, I think 1 John 4, 14 sort of sums it up. There is no fear in love. There's no fear in love. When I realize the extent of God's love, God's love for me, that nothing can alter that love, it removes fear. It says, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. See, Jesus Christ took my punishment. I will never be punished by him. I'll never be condemned by him. I've been set free in Christ Jesus. Again, not that he's going to let me off, but when he disciplines me, it's not out of anger. It's out of love because he's thinking of my future. He's thinking of what's best for me. He's, he's realizing the attitudes that I have right now or the values or the character, the conduct. They're destroying me. They're hurting me. So because he loves me, he's going to get involved in my life and take whatever measures necessary to bring me to brokenness and repentance, but not because he hates me, because he loves me. And he's committed to my good and what is best for me. And not only does God love you as a believer, notice God chose you. God chose you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the latter part of verse 13. Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now, 
The issue of God's choice or election for salvation has been a point of great debate and tragically has brought division to the body of Christ. Now, I am so thankful. You know, I've been uh, here at Edgewood, uh, uh, what, close to 36, 37 years, uh, whatever it is. And in all those years, we've had diversity in the church body, even on this issue. We've had, we've had people on different sides of this, of this debate, and I'm so thankful that we've been able to maintain harmony and unity. And I do want you to know that we've maintained that harmony and unity because we have been diligent, and we have been intent, intentional, and we've been determined to maintain unity and not let this divide us. We've always taken the position on issues like this, that we need to demonstrate a love that's greater than our differences with one another. And I'm thankful that we've been able to do that here at at Edgewood. But to simplify the debate, but to simplify the debate, there are those who believe that the Bible teaches an unconditional election. In other words, that salvation is based on God's sovereign choice alone. And therefore, faith in Christ is a gift that God gives those that He has chosen for salvation. And then there are others, like myself, I'll be honest, who believe God in His sovereignty chose to create and respect man as a free moral agent. And therefore, God's choice or election is predicated on God's foreknowledge of those who will believe, those who will place their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I will make no attempt to resolve uh, this debate uh, this morning. And even in verse 13, notice you see both sides of the debate and without a resolution. Notice it says believers are chosen for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. There's the work of God, God, the God factor. And what? Faith in the truth. There's the man factor. I simply want to emphasize, here's my point this morning. That whichever camp you are in, whichever camp you're in, you should find great assurance in the truth of God's elective choice. The point being, once chosen by God, you are secure with God. That's the point. That's the point that we glory in, that we rejoice in. You know, I think of 2 Timothy chapter 2.13, which reads... If we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. We find security in life's battles, not in our faith, not in our feelings, which are inevitably going to fluctuate. We find security in the eternal faithfulness and constancy of Jesus Christ, who never changes The great missionary Hudson Taylor often said, it is not by trying to be faithful, but in looking to the faithful one that we win the victory. God loves you. God chose you. And then notice the third thing, God called you. God called you. Verse 14, and it was for this, he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus what began in eternity past, God's election, reaches its, reaches its climax in eternity future 
as we gain the glory of our Lord Jesus. What begins with God's grace always leads to God's glory. Who God saves, he sanctifies. Who God saves, he sanctifies. And who God sanctifies, he glorifies. In Romans eleven twenty nine, we read the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God loves you, chose you, called you, and nothing the devil or the world throws at you, and not even your own failures can alter that reality. Stand firm by rejoicing in the security of your salvation, because if God is for you, who can be against you? I mean, not only does, can nothing separate you from the love of Christ, But if you're a believer, God gives you the promise and guarantee there's nothing that can touch your life, no persecution, no false teaching, no temptation, not the adversary, no discouragement that God cannot ultimately use for your good to draw you closer to Jesus Christ and to refine you into his likeness and character. Amen? Amen. Amen. Look at the second truth, the second tactic on how to Stand firm as we await the return of Christ. Stand firm by holding on to the certainty of God's truth. We stand firm not only by rejoicing in the security of our salvation, but also by holding on to the certainty of God's truth. Look at verse 15. It says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now, folks, listen very carefully right here. Do not miss Paul's point. After sharing about the securing of our salvation, about the security of our salvation, that nothing can alter God's love, nothing can alter God's choice or calling, it would be easy to think, well, I can just sit back and relax. Take it easy on my way to heaven. But Paul's appeal is just the opposite. Far from lying down, he says, we need to stand firm. Paul will never allow the assurance of salvation to produce passivity in a believer's heart and life. Paul's exhortation is a double one. He says, stand firm and hold on to. See, Paul pictures the battle. uh, He pictures the believer battling all those things we talked about earlier, persecution, false teaching, temptation, the devil, and discouragement. We're in the danger in that battle of being overcome, of being swept away. But Paul urges us, no, you take your stand for Christ. You stand firm, and you hold on to something solid and secure. You clutch on to it for dear life, lest you be swept away. Both verbs, stand firm and hold to, are present imperatives in the Greek text, simply indicating that this battle is going to be long, it's going to be hard, it's going to be painful. Therefore, we are commanded to keep on standing firm, to keep on holding on. And what are we commanded to hold on to? Don't miss this. This is the key. The traditions, he says. The traditions. The word tradition literally means things handed down. And in this context, it is a clear reference to divine revelation. The Word of God given by mouth or letter by the apostles. In Jude 3, we read, Contend earnestly for the faith 
which was once for all handed down to the saints. In Proverbs 4, verse 13, we read, take hold of, of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. And then I think the parable of the builders in Matthew 7, when Jesus came to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? He said, there are two men that built, a home, built, built homes in the same area, same vicinity. They probably were neighbors. He said, one man, he dug deep, and he built his house on a solid rock, a solid foundation. The other man, he took the easy way out. He just built his house on the sand. There was no solid foundation. Both houses went up. From all appearances, they looked pretty similar. But then what happened? A storm came. And when the storm came, what happened? The house that was built on the sand collapsed. Jesus said, great was the fall of that house. But the house that was built on the rock, the firm foundation, it withstood the test of the winds, of the rains, of the flood. It withstood all that pressure. And then Jesus applied the parable. He said, the guy that built his house on the rock, he's like the wise man who not only hears my words, but what? Obeys them, practices my word, builds his life on my word. He said, the other man that built his house on the sand is like the person who hears, who listens to the message, but doesn't apply, doesn't appropriate it, doesn't build his life on it, doesn't obey it. So bottom line, what's Jesus saying? Security is found by building your life on the Word of God without compromise. Without compromise. So instead of the assurance of salvation making us passive, it's just the opposite. It gives us the security we need to stand our ground, to hold on to God's Word, to fight the forces of evil, to advance God's kingdom. Look at the third tactic, the third truth. We're to stand firm by rejoicing in the security of our salvation. We're to stand firm by holding on to the certainty of God's truth. And third, we're to stand firm by asking God for stability through prayer. The importance of prayer. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Now, he ends with a prayer. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us, and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Notice, notice, and this, this is a, a beautiful truth, powerful truth. Notice the promises that Paul praised God for in verses 13 and 14, his unfailing love, his irrevocable choice in calling that would bring the Thessalonians safely home to gain the glory of Jesus Christ, he now asked God to accomplish those very things in their lives. We see praise and prayer being brought together. What he praised God for, now he prays that God will accomplish. The fact that God, now listen now, the fact that God promises to do something should never discourage prayer. Rather, it should encourage prayer. Prayer is not trying to persuade God to do something He's reluctant to do. Prayer is cooperating with God to accomplish what He promised to do. Prayer is the God-appointed way 
of releasing the power of God to do what God promised to do and to enable us to inherit those promises. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, and this is the confidence which we have before God, that if we ask anything according to His will, and how do we know what God's will is? It's written down for us. We have God's promises. So I come to the Word of God. I discover His promises and how they apply to me. And I begin to ask God, fulfill what you promised you would do. And it says, if you do that, He hears us. And if we know He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked before Him. Now, sadly, now let's get very honest and transparent. Sadly, as it says in James 4, 2, you do not have because what? You don't ask. Every deficiency in a Christian's life. Whoop, my glasses just went. Every deficiency in a Christian's life. Every deficiency in the church can be traced back to one fundamental thing, the neglect of prayer. The neglect of prayer. Or when we try to use prayer as a means to fulfill our selfish desires instead of accomplishing God's purposes, which is to win a lost world to Jesus Christ. That Jesus might be formed in us to be displayed through us that others might be drawn to Him. So the question this morning is, do you want to experience security? Do you want to experience stability in your Christian life so that you can stand firm for Christ as you await His return? Well, then you need to heed Paul's exhortation. Rejoice in the security of your salvation that God loves you, and nothing can alter that. That God's choice and calling is irrevocable in your life. And the person God saves, He will sanctify. And the person He sanctifies, He will glorify. Rejoice in the security of your salvation. Let that cast out all fear of God, where you can know you can go boldly to Him, even in times of failure, even, even in times of sin, knowing that yes, you have pained them. Yes, you've grieved them like a parent's heart would be grieved by a wayward child. But his love hasn't altered. He's still for you. He wants to restore you through repentance and confession and encouragement. And so you come to him. And then hold on to the certainty of God's truth. Don't become passive in the assurance of salvation. He's given you that assurance so in that security, you can stand your ground holding on to the Word of God to fight the enemy and advance God's kingdom. And then ask God for stability through prayer. Realize it is through prayer that the promises of God are fulfilled. It's through prayer that God will empower you. What's the old little adage? Little prayer, what? Little power. More prayer, more power. Much prayer, much power. Father, a very simple message this day, but uh, I trust a very practical one. Uh, Father, we do rejoice in this great salvation 
that you have bestowed uh, on us. A salvation that is rooted in your covenant love. A salvation that's rooted in your faithfulness and your constancy. And thank you that you love us with a love that will never fail us. A love that will never let us go. A love that will never let us off. And then, Lord, give us grace to build our lives on the Word of God. To hold on to it for dear life in the midst of life's battles to hold on to its certainty, knowing, as Jesus said, the one who builds his life on your word will withstand the inevitable pressures of life and will endure the test of time by your grace. And then, Lord, forgive us for our neglect of prayer. We've seen prayer emphasized throughout these two epistles of First and Second Thessalonians. We see Paul continually praying for these new converts, even continually praying for himself and his ministry. And so, Lord, uh, make us a people of prayer. Make this church a house of prayer. Uh, Bring us a prayer revival, Lord, and uh, do a deep work in our hearts and lives on that very point, both personally and corporately. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do this for the express end that we would stand our ground for Jesus in this fallen world, holding on to your certain truth to fight the forces of evil, to advance your kingdom, and thank you. If you be for us, who can be against us? For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.